This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. G'day, Diplomates fans. I'm Misha. This week, I caught up with Evgenia Karamutsa. Evgenia is a Russian dissident and campaigner for democratic change in Russia. She's the advocacy coordinator for the Free Russia Foundation, which seeks to give a voice to those repressed by the current Russian government and inform the world about the situation in Russia. Now, Evgenia is also the wife of Vladimir Karamutsa, a Russian politician, author and historian, who is currently jailed in Russia as a political prisoner of Vladimir Putin. Now, Vladimir Karamutsa played a key role in the establishment of Magnitsky laws around the world and has been a long-time opponent of Vladimir Putin. Now, I caught up with Evgenia to discuss the war in Ukraine, Russian war crimes, why the West ignored Putin for too long, Russian political opposition, why Ukraine must win, and what a post-Putin Russia might look like one day. I want to say a big thank you to Evgeny for coming on the show. It's not easy talking about these things, especially when your husband is a political prisoner of the Putin regime. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the episode and learn as much as I did. Also, uh, Evgeny gave one of the most touching answers to the barbecue question, which brought a tear to my eye. You'll understand why when you get to it. For those of you interested, I'm currently in Kiev reporting for The Fin. So uh, please follow me on Twitter uh, for the latest updates and check out my reporting in the Australian Financial Review and other places. And also continue to support Ukraine. It's absolutely critical that Ukraine wins this war. Uh, They're on top right now, but they need support to keep going as Putin calls up a huge number of troops and tries to reverse the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So keep listening. Uh, share and like the show. Please rate and review us. And Slava Ukraina, enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome to Diplomates. Uh, Evgeny Karamutsa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how are you? Uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's a great opportunity for me to speak out. Of course, uh, very pleased to have you and uh, it's a delight to speak to you. Now, for those listeners who may not be familiar with your organisation, the Free Russia Foundation, I thought maybe you could explain what it is and what its objectives are as a starting point for our conversation. Uh, Well, Free Russia Foundation is a US-based human rights NGO that has been involved in pro-democracy advocacy in uh, human rights in Russia. Um, They have done a lot of humanitarian work since the beginning of the invasion, uh, evacuating Ukrainians from Ukraine, Russians and Belarusians uh, uh, from Russian Belarus. And uh, uh, they are also carrying out initiatives to help grassroots movements in Russia, um, especially in those regions that were mostly uh, hit by drafting, and I'm talking about the uh, ethnic minorities. Um, And uh, uh, they have been trying to somehow organize the activities of uh, those Russians, uh, Russian human rights fighters, activists, uh, journalists who were forced to leave the country. Uh, So the organization is helping them establish uh, themselves elsewhere. Uh, to be able to continue their work. Like if we're talking about journalists, their work is tremendously important nowadays in countering propaganda, in 
um, just in creating informational content uh, for the Russian public. And there is a big demand for independent news in Russia. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the number of VPN services installed since the beginning of the invasion is just skyrocketing. So it shows that there is a big demand for independent news. And uh, in Russia nowadays, there is not a single independent outlet, media outlet left. And according to Prosecutor General, to the Russian Prosecutor General himself, uh, over 300,000 media outlets have been uh, um, blocked, banned since the invasion. So that's uh, that's a tremendous amount. So that's uh, we're talking about even the smallest uh, media outlets that were reposting information or leaving links for people to go to to read about the war in Ukraine and about what was being done there by the Russian army. Um, and the, the three major uh, independent media outlets, uh, TV Dost, uh, Echo of Moscow radio station and Nova Gazeta were all closed down or forced to stop their activities, uh, forced by the Russian government to stop their activities. So that's uh, like the war, on, the censorship war in Russia uh, has been carried out extremely successfully. There is nothing left. Mm. I mean, the entire media space in Russia has been cleansed and we need uh, to make sure that the work of those journalists uh, who were forced to leave the country and still want to continue uh, providing Russians with uh, informational content, we need to make sure that the work is supported and uh, it's encouraged. so uh, the Free Russia Foundation has been involved in all of these activities. You know, I just I, I don't know where to even start because uh, when we think about all the effects this war is having on the international community, on Russians, on Ukraine, on everyone, right. it's so global that you don't really know where to start. Right? right? It's just you're doing everything you can, obviously. So let's talk about the war. You really can't speak about Russia now without discussing the war in Ukraine. And you're obviously Russian, you're a Russian dissident, but, you know, we've seen this biggest land war in Europe really since World War II. Russia is the aggressor uh, in that war. You must have very mixed feelings about this. I suppose my question is, what is it to be Russian during this war and how do you feel? Well, I uh, honestly, I don't have mixed feelings. I have a lot of rage, a lot of anger inside of me. This uh, regime that has been oppressing the Russian population for over two decades has turned our country into a country aggressor and has invaded the territory of a peaceful neighboring country. There are no mixed feelings about this. This is a war of aggression and all those involved in making the decision to start this war of aggression in committing those war crimes, they need to be brought to justice, obviously. And, uh, you know, as a Russian uh, say, well, you know, my husband, Vladimir, when he was uh, officially charged on April the 22nd for spreading fake news about the war in Ukraine. So basically for calling this a war and for denouncing the crimes committed by the Russian army on the territory of the sovereign state of Ukraine. On the same day, he was also declared a foreign agent. And uh, in uh, the logic of the Russian authorities, uh, you need to be a foreign agent to be saying those things to denounce the war, to speak against it, 
And I remember how Vladimir responded to that. He said, well, in order to oppose this war, you don't have to be foreign agent. You just have to have a conscience. So that's the same. The same goes for me and for many, many Russians that, uh, who I know. To me, this is the only humanly possible reaction to what is happening in Ukraine. And so, how you know? Would you say then that um, there are a lot of Russians that feel this way? Because at the moment, I think it's fair to say that you know Russia is seen as a pariah state. Russians themselves are seen as supporting this war, and so. It's obviously very difficult for Russians to speak out about it in Russia, but do you think more could be done by people such as yourself uh, to raise, I suppose, a counter view to the Russian Federation, what it's doing right now in Ukraine? Well, you know, uh, many people who say, uh, who talk about the support of Russians for this war, they um, base their opinions on the results of opinion polls conducted in a totalitarian state by state-controlled pollsters. This is what I've been uh, seeing since the beginning of the invasion. People say, well, uh, the surveys say that 86% of Russians stand behind the war and behind Putin. I'm like, are you serious? You're talking about the results of opinion polls conducted in a totalitarian state by state-controlled pollsters. You're talking about those opinion polls in which five out of six people refuse to answer the question. And the most popular answer is, I don't want to go to war. I mean, yes, not everyone goes out into the street to protest. Uh, it's true. But since February, there have been over 19,000 people who have been detained or arrested, uh, served with administrative sense, uh, administrative charges or criminal charges uh, since February. And I mean, 19,000 people, over 19,000 people, uh, in a totalitarian state. That's a lot. In uh, 1968, um, seven people, and I mean that's in an entire Soviet Union, seven people went out in the Red Square to protest against the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And the Prague newspaper later wrote that there were at least seven reasons for which they would never be able to hate Russians. I mean, today we have over 19,000 such reasons. And I uh, do understand the sentiment of people who say, well, Russians should go out in the streets in millions and fight. Um, well, I just, you know, I read news. Um, of course, I wake up with the news. I go to bed with the news. And uh, uh, I uh, follow the Telegram channel of OBD Info. That's one of uh, Russia's um, uh, sort of most respected um, uh monitoring groups that follow persecution, political persecution and uh, uh, political repression in Russia. And so uh, my phone doesn't stop beeping because news from them keep coming, like, you know, throughout the day. And uh, this uh, morning I read about yet another protest in one of the regions, uh, I, I think it was in uh, Dagestan again, and uh, it's like 80 women went out in the street to protest. They were there for five minutes before the arrest began. So how, how do you even bring out millions of people in this situation into the streets when they, don't, they, they can't stay there for more than five minutes before being whisked away by the police? Mm. And when we uh, read stories about 
um, just a few days ago, a young boy, an activist, uh, was arrested for reading poetry uh, in one of Moscow squares. Well, while he was being arrested by the police in his home, he was actually raped by police officers with a dumbbell. At the same time, his close friend was being beaten up in the next room. Uh, she was being threatened with a, uh, with a group rape. Her hair was being pulled out and uh, they, they stuck some stickers on her face using uh, crazy glue. So we're talking about that kind of situation, that kind of oppression. And uh, the prosecutor in the case against this boy, because, well, of course, after all of this, he was not offered medical help. No, he was dragged to the police station, and now there is a case against him um, for speaking against the war. And uh, so the prosecutor in his case said that uh, police officers have the right to recur to certain um, tactics if there is such a necessity. And in this case, she believed this necessity was present. So we were talking about that kind of dehumanization of people right. in the country. And uh, uh, well, if we see uh, thousands of people getting arrested despite this kind of repression, I think it clearly shows that there is opposition to the war. And uh, I yes, I think that when you read such stories, uh, you think twice or maybe three times before going out to protest. Mm. Imagine a, uh, a, a, just an ordinary family. Uh, I mean, I am lucky. I must consider myself lucky. Being a wife of a political prisoner, I still consider myself lucky because my kids are safe. Mm. And uh, when I go out and I speak out, I don't face those repressions uh, that Russians face back home. And uh, I don't think about the possibility of me ending up in prison with a lengthy prison sentence and my kids being put in an orphanage because I'd be deprived of parental rights. I don't have to think about that. I just go out and speak what I think is people need to hear. Right. And um, uh, imagine just a regular, ordinary Russian family. Imagine you have young kids that you have to raise. Imagine you have a son uh, of the age where when he could be drafted where he could be mobilized to go to this war. And you have older parents, let's say. So you know that your parents would not survive without you because pensions in Russia are ridiculous. So if you end up in jail, they will end up living uh, on, I don't know, 100 euros per month, which is not even enough to cover medical expenses. Your kids might be put in an orphanage and your uh, oldest son can be sent to war to fight Ukrainians. What are you going to do with your oldest son in this situation? Are you not going to want him to leave the country? Or are you going to say to your son, you know what, I think you should go to prison for three years, which is a better option than going to fight in Ukraine. I, I believe it is a better option. But at the same time, we know what happens in Russian prisons. There's widespread torture, there's humiliation, there, is, uh, there are all kinds of uh, tactics used by uh, the authorities with regard to politicals, as they're called. 
So if your son refuses to go to war and ends up in prison, is it going to be safe for those three years? Yes, he's, uh, the, the one big uh, sort of, the one big plus about be, uh, going to prison instead of going to Ukraine is that your hands are not going to be covered in blood. And many people think that this is better, and I understand this. And uh, I, I think, oh my God, this is absolutely mind-boggling. Well, the, you know, we've mentioned 19,000 uh, political prisoners and your husband, Vladimir, uh, he uh, is a prominent politician, opposition politician to Vladimir Putin. Uh, yeah, he's previously been the target of assassination, political assassinations by poisoning, uh, which uh, mercifully he survived. Then, of course, he's now in a prison in Russia. Uh he went back knowing full well that he was likely to be arrested. So I suppose starting from how is he and are you in contact with him? I saw a recent story where uh, there appears that notes have been passed to him and he's been able to get messages out to the media. But firstly, how is he? Are you in contact? And then maybe you can explain why he did go back knowing that he would be arrested like every other political opponent of Putin's. Um, well, Vladimir's... Uh... Vladimir has been in the opposition to the current regime for as long as Vladimir Putin has been in power. And uh, um, he's been involved in the advocacy for the introduction of Magnitsky sanctions for over 10 years now. Uh, back in 2010, around that time, um, when Boris Nemtsov and uh, Vladimir began this advocacy together with Boris Nemtsov, and the idea was Back then, it was already clear that there was no rule of law or independent justice left in Russia. Back then, you know, that was over 10 years ago. And uh, hence the uh, this Magnitsky legislation. So the idea was, if we cannot uh, bring those people responsible for human rights abuses to justice in Russia, we're going to seek justice elsewhere. And for that advocacy, uh, Boris Nemtsov paid the ultimate price when he was... Uh, assassinated in Moscow, uh, literally in front of the Kremlin. And only three months after that, Vladimir was poisoned for the first time. He ended up in a coma with a multiple organ failure. Um, he, he was given 5% chance of survival. He beat all the odds. Uh, he stood up and went back to Russia. And uh, he did the same thing after the 2017 poisoning. Um, which also left him in a coma with a multiple organ failure. Vladimir is, um, he considers himself, he identifies himself as the Russian politician. And he is truly, to me, a Russian patriot. Someone who does not equate the government to the entire country, the regime to the entire people. He never makes this mistake. And uh, I know who his um, who he represents? Uh, I know why it was important for him to go back to Russia to show people that they should not be afraid, that they should stand up for what they believe in, and they should face the evil, even if it's scary. Because there comes a certain point when you cannot be afraid anymore. You you cannot. You have to fight it. 
And to him, it was important to be where people were actually fighting the regime. And it was important for him to share the same risks and challenges faced by Russians back home. Um, many of our friends and colleagues are in prison nowadays. Many of them have been forced to leave the country and continue their work from outside. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think that it is important to understand that the Russian people is not a monolith. I mean, I understand the emotional sentiment. Uh, I understand the wish to portray the entire Russian population as this monolith who stands behind the war and who is unable to fight for their rights. Well, these people have been fighting for their rights for over two decades. There have been a number of there has been a number of uh, uprisings, uh, mass rallies that were violently squashed time and again, and. Uh, even before the full-scale invasion, there were over 300 political prisoners in the Russian Federation. And, you know, it's, um, I think in uh, 1987 at the Vienna, at the OSC meeting in Vienna, uh, the Soviet Union admitted to holding around 200 political prisoners. So even before the full-scale invasion, we had more than in late Soviet times. Now this number, uh, the number of political prisoners in, in Russia nears 500. And that's according to the Memorial Human Rights Center that uses very strict criteria to identify someone a political prisoner. Uh, they use the criteria recognized by PACE. And uh, for example, if a person, I don't know, shows resistance while being detained, he will not be considered a political prisoner. So the, they do use very strict criteria. And uh, according to them, uh, well, today the number is uh, 487, I think. And that number is growing up every day. And so, you know, you are a, a Russian dissident. You're a political activist. Your husband is a prominent opposition leader. But you're also a mother and a wife. How does it make you feel to see you know, your husband being detained by a regime that you've described in so many ways as being uh, yeah, murderous and torturous, et cetera. Yeah. How do you feel? And, you know, do, do you have a sense of what conditions uh, Vladimir is being kept in? Uh, well, this is uh, definitely not easy. And I, um, you know, until recently I wasn't a human rights fighter or anything, anyone like that. I mean, I um, I used to be a translator, interpreter. Uh, loved my job, was happy with it. Vladimir was always on the road. I used to uh, work from home and take care of the kids. And um, but but since Vladimir's arrest, I don't see that I have any other option. I am not wired this way. I can't I can't keep silent. And I cannot stand bullies. And this regime has been trying to destroy my family for years. My kids twice went through 
seeing their father in a coma and then unable to walk. And our, at, at the time, the father was poisoned for the first time. Our oldest was nine. And then I had a six-year-old and a three-year-old in my arms as well as Vladimir because he couldn't walk and I had to basically carry him around the house. So that was not easy. And uh, uh, obviously now realizing that he's been held by the same people who tried to kill him twice in the past makes me very worried. Well, that is not the word, believe me. Uh, about his safety, about his life. Um, do you know, um, I remember I read uh, the memoirs uh, by Yelena Bonner, the wife of uh, Andrei Sakharov. And in her memoirs, uh, she says, academician Sakharov believes that publicity is the only weapon in the struggle for human rights. And um, as a... Um, loyal student of my husband, I completely share this view. Well, I do share this view as well. I believe that publicity is my weapon and I will use this weapon um, as well as I can. And I will continue speaking out and I will continue raising awareness about what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening in Russia, because uh, because this is what anyone with a conscience should do nowadays. Right. And so we've spoken a lot about Putin and you've spoken a lot about, I suppose, a, a big time span of all the things that have happened really over the 20 years or so that Putin's been in power. I guess my question is, should he, should he and could he have been stopped sooner? You know, how is it? In my mind, we passed through so many red flags of bad behaviour along the way. You've talked about political assassinations and attempted assassinations, some of those in Russia and some of them in other parts of the world. Closures of media you've covered, election interference in Russia, obviously rigged elections in Russia and election interference around the world. Uh, you know, And then, of course, we've had annexations of Georgia, uh, parts of Moldova. Now we're getting... Uh, similar, uh, well, we had annexations in 2014 in Ukraine, and now we've got a full-scale war, an invasion of Ukraine. So I suppose what could what should have been done sooner? Could it could Putin have stopped, been stopped rather, had the world acted earlier? Absolutely, I believe that uh, uh, the Russian people is only part, partly responsible for raising this monster. I believe uh, part of the responsibility belongs to those uh, uh, Western leaders who preferred to close their eyes to what was happening in Russia for all these years and to what uh, the regime was doing with regard to its neighbors in the past. I mean, it's, it's... Vladimir Putin did not, you know, when he came to power, he started right away. By 2003, there were no free elections in Russia. So we haven't had one single free and fair election uh, for 19 years. And uh, in 2003, he closed down the last independent major independent TV channel. So the Russian population has not had access to independent, uh, independent information, objective information on TV for 19 years. 
and the majority of the Russian population relies on TV as the main source of information. Unfortunately, yes, but uh, if you leave big cities and go into the regions, people don't have access to internet. Forget about VPN services. Um, they don't have toilets, for God's sake. Forget about internet. Uh, so these people have been subject to the same narrative uh, year after year after year, that Russia is this big country, a great country that is surrounded by enemies. Everyone out there wants Russia's demise, wants to see Russia on its knees, and everyone out there hates Russians. Uh, and so the 19 years of this brainwashing has had its effects on people's minds. Uh, and that's, you know, but that's only part of the problem. The other part is that while Vladimir Putin uh, was having his opponents, the opponents of his regime, killed both in Russia and on foreign soil, while he was invading Georgia, annexing Crimea, bombing Syria, there were no serious repercussions for any of his actions in the past. I mean, the, uh, there would be some concern voiced. Yeah, there was some concern, I remember. There was a lot of concern voiced. But then everyone would go back to doing business as usual with Vladimir Putin. Time after time after time. A reset, yet another negotiation, yet another business deal. I mean, you think about the uh, um, protests in Russia in 2012. Those were mass protests. One of the biggest in Russia's modern history. They were violently squashed. People were being beaten to pulp in the streets of Moscow. What did the West do? No, there was another business deal. There was another resetting of relations with Vladimir Putin. So two decades of impunity led Vladimir Putin to believe that he could get away with pretty much anything. And in his mind, this is pretty logical. I mean, he thinks, okay, well, if I can annex Crimea, why can't I go and annex the rest of Ukraine? If I can bomb civilians in Syria, why can't I do the same in Ukraine? In his, in his warped mind, in his warped imperialistic mind, uh, where the Ukraine does not have the right to choose its own path, because in his mind, this is still part of Russia. In his mind, this is all pretty logical to him. The collapse of the Soviet Union was uh, the biggest uh, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. So, of course, he wants it all back. And I believe that uh, had these targeted sanctions that my husband has been advocating for, campaigning for, for over 10 years, had these sanctions been introduced earlier, after the annexation of Crimea, we might have been able to avoid this full-scale invasion altogether. And so let's, yeah, so let's talk about what I suppose could be done. Yeah, you've spoken about uh, uh, Vladimir uh, and Boris Nemtsov were advocates for Magnitsky sanctions, which is essentially, uh, you know, a, a way of financially and uh, uh, by movement targeting, you know, people that have done committed war crimes or crimes against humanity or political crimes, et cetera, and making sure that their assets are frozen or they're not able to travel. Uh, I agree with you, actually, for what it's worth. You know, I, my personal view is for a long time the world just looked the other way and preferred to, t to deal with the oligarchs and their money. And, uh, you know, had 
the oligarchs been prevented from leaving Russia for the last decade. Politics may have looked different there and around the world, and perhaps we could have avoided some of these things. But nevertheless, we are here right now with a war underway. What can be done now to help bring about the end of Putinism, and what can countries like Australia do to help with that? Well, there are a few things. First of all, I do believe that Ukraine needs all the help because Ukraine has to win the war on Ukraine's terms. There can be no talk about donating these territories that uh, Putin wants to annex. There is, there can be no talk about Ukraine's donating these territories to Vladimir Putin to appease him, because appeasement does not work. We've seen that in the past. Appeasements, uh, appeasement of bullies does not work. A bully will push further and further. He will keep pushing until he's punished for his crimes. And the fact that Ukraine has been achieving all these amazing victories in the recent weeks does not mean that we can all sit back and wait for them to finish the same. No, they need more help. They need as many weapons as they need to win the war and to chase every single Russian soldier from the Ukrainian territory. Uh, of course, there can be no talk about, uh, but I, I don't I don't believe there is, uh, about um, um, accepting the results this so-called results of those referendums. Right. And that takes me back to that to that topic of uh, people in the West uh, taking for granted the results of opinion polls conducted in totalitarian states, you know, but not accepting the results of referendums. Where's the difference? But yeah, again. Um, Fair point. Uh, that's, so that, that's the first uh, key uh, factor. The second uh, key factor, I believe, is, uh, well, sanctions. Sanctions need to be stronger. Sanctions need to continue. There can be no talk about lifting sanctions. I mean, we all know, yes, uh, the, the winter is coming and uh, uh, many Western leaders are now worried about their um, people freezing in the winter without Russian oil and gas. But look what it has led us. Uh, Western dependency on Russian oil and gas led to the rise of a dictator in the middle of Europe. This cannot continue. I mean, in my view, this cannot continue. And I'm sure that this view is shared by so many people uh, in Russia and everywhere else. Um, so sanctions need to continue and uh, economic sanctions need to be strong and they need to be imposed further if further sanctions are needed. But also, I believe that those targeted sanctions are still extremely effective. They are effective because they send a clear signal to the regime and to the Russian people that Western countries do not equate the regime to the entire Russian people, and that uh, Russian and that Western leaders who represent those countries that are based on the rule of law and respect for individual human rights are going to be bringing to justice those who are responsible for committing the crimes. Because uh, collective responsibility is a very tricky thing. Basically, when everyone's responsible, no one truly is. And so I think that the idea should be to hold uh, accountable those who have been committing the crimes. 
And uh, I mean, nowadays it's pretty uh, easy to determine if a person uh, has been in uh, has been involved in in those activities and or supporting these activities, so aiding and abetting those activities that led to the war and uh, that continue sort of encouraging it. Right? It's it's pretty easy to determine if a person uh, deserves to be on the Magnitsky list all around the world. And I mean, uh, so many countries now have the Magnitsky legislation, including Australia. Right. And uh, um, and I believe that those sanctions are extremely effective because they do send a clear signal to Russian civil society, uh, who I represent now in the absence of my husband, um, that they do send a clear signal to the regime. But they also... Um, um, they also make sure that that money who has been stolen from the Russian population, because that money never belonged to those to, to Putin's officials and Putin's oligarchs. It has been stolen from Russian taxpayers for over two decades. And so that uh, this money has to be seized, has to be frozen. And these people cannot be allowed to use Western uh, financial systems, uh, Western banking systems to to store that stolen loot. It goes against every uh, law, dem democratic law in any uh, country based on the rule of law. I mean, it's just right. gone against the go against uh, every principle. Uh, so that money has to be frozen, and uh, and yeah, that money will. I think, be used to uh, rebuild Ukraine and maybe rebuild Russia as well. Because right. I don't know how many billions have been stolen over two decades. Uh, well, from we don't Russia know. We know there's about 650 billion frozen, though no one's got a total figure on that. But there could be many, many, many more billions hidden around the world in all sorts of places. Absolutely. But so I just want to turn to a little bit of, yeah, you, know, you must imagine a world that looks like you know, a post-Russia, sorry, post-Putin Russia and what that might look like. You know, the question I'd like to ask you, because you know, your husband, uh, Vladimir, was very close to Boris Nemtsov, who was in many ways the the great sort of democratic Western liberal, if we can call him that, of, uh, of Russian politics before he was assassinated and Vladimir is taking up that mantle. But in your mind, are the Nemzov forces, if we can call them that, if the other the democratic Western liberal type of forces dominant now, or this nationalist wave that Putin and Putinism has unleashed in Russia, and we're seeing that with now even with Putin being criticised increasingly by this nationalist sentiment, saying Putin is too weak on Ukrainians, would you believe? Yeah. You know, so, firstly. What does a post-Putin Russia look like? And secondly, has Putin unleashed something worse? Uh, and should we be concerned about that too? Um, well, I'm not a politician, so I can't offer you a program of tomorrow's Russia. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, That's but... good, though. The, the best kind of ideas come from people that aren't politicians, Evgenia, so go ahead. Um, but all we see that... that um, rage by Putin's propagandists and uh, certain officials, right? Uh, we are seeing um, the the reaction of a minority, actually. It is not 
the majority of the Russian population does not have intrinsic nationalistic views. It's uh, uh, because there is uh, no independent media in Russia left, we only see what is being um, thrown out there by, by that violent, aggressive minority. That's about 20% of the population, all those people with Zs, you know, all those uh, people who uh, call for even stronger approach to Ukraine. Or the, um, and uh, uh, they are the minority. They're just very well seen and not very loud because they're the only one that are now represented on national sort of news, so-called news. Right. Uh, and um, the majority of the population, I think, uh, is pretty much apathetic, unfortunately, or scared, very much scared or apathetic. And that is, uh, of course, very unfortunate. Uh, but I believe that uh, now the situation will begin changing quickly. Now that the central part of Russia will be affected by mobilization. And I think there will be more protests and I think there will be more, more disconsent voiced. Uh, well, I, so let me ask you about the mobilization. Are you hearing from people that you know that are either fleeing Russia or resisting mobilization, or is there hostility towards Putin's mobilization of 300,000 people? How's it being received right now in Russia? You must be speaking to people. Well, there are uh, definitely protests uh, connected with, uh, to mobilization. Uh, these protests are being violently squashed, and they're uh, affecting uh, all Russian regions nowadays. Um, again, those protests are not those mass, mass protests when uh, hundreds of thousands are going in the streets, but I've already explained why this uh, would be a very unlikely situation in today's Russia. Um, and uh, many people do flee the country. And uh, I, I hear people say that, well, these people should just go out in the street and fight Putin. Well, I understand the sentiment, but on the other hand, if I imagine um, myself living in Russia and having a, uh, a son of the age to be drafted, will I want to keep him safe and just push him out of the country so he stays safe? I don't know. It's it's very difficult to... Um, it's very difficult to answer that question, but I already told you about the kind of pressure... Uh, and violence that protesters are being subject to. Right. Uh, and uh, that, I mean, I do understand fear. Well, do you, I do understand it. So let, let me ask you to look into the future. Can you imagine a, a fully democratic uh, Russia that's part of Europe, part of, uh, you know, the global community? Can you see that after this war that that can happen, that that can be, a, uh, I suppose, a a reckoning for those who've committed war crimes and a tearing down of what Putin has turned Russia into and something better to emerge. Can you imagine that? Absolutely. I can tell you that I'm absolutely sure that there are millions of Russians who want, who see themselves as part of the global democratic community and who, who want to live as a part of a democratic community. 
We just want a Russia that will be able to deal with its own scoundrels and its own criminals. Uh, we want a country in which we will be able to prosecute those criminals ourselves, not seek justice elsewhere. We want to have a country that's built on the rule of law and respect for human rights. Uh, we want people to be uh, to have access to independent free media and uh, be able to vote and be elected in free elections. That's it. That's my program for tomorrow's Russia. Uh, into you know very briefly. And I do believe that there are millions of Russians who share my view. And uh, there is uh, one um, key thing that will make it possible uh, for us to build such a country. Because, well, when everything collapses, the country will be in ruins, obviously. Putin is leading two wars at the same time. One is against Ukraine a bloody, unjustified war against Ukraine. Another one is the war that he's been at for the last two decades, the war against Russian civil society. Um, and I believe that uh, in order for a different Russia, for the possibility of a different Russia to emerge, there have to be public trials. Those people who have been committing all these crimes have to be brought to justice. They have to be to 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 be brought to justice and sent to jail to rot for the rest of their days, and that has to be as public as possible, so that those that part of the Russian uh, society that has been brainwashed by this continuous propaganda, so that that part realizes what would be done in their names, and. Uh, I believe this was not done in the early 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think that this was one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin was able to rise to power only 10 years after the collapse. Um, I believe we cannot afford making the same mistake. Uh, and it, it has to happen. I know that the ICC can deal with uh, those uh, responsible for committing war, crime, war crimes. Uh, but there has to be a tribunal that would uh, bring to justice all those responsible for making the decision to launch this war of aggression against Ukraine and all those who have been aiding and abetting this war, financing it, spreading propaganda about it and all of that. All these people need to be brought to justice if we want another chance at building a democratic country. Well, one last thing I'd like to speak to you about it. You and I were together at a conference at the Forum uh, 2000 in, in Prague in Czech Republic. And so, you know, the, the big focus of that conference was, was about the war and how to help Ukrainians. And you were a Russian there. Uh, and, you know, there was obviously a lot of hostility towards Russians. And I suppose I was privy to a lot of conversations uh, that you had and a lot of things you shared uh, to Ukrainians. I was wondering you might have a message for Ukrainians uh, who are at the moment uh, being brutally invaded and killed by Putin. Yeah, you know, how? What is your message for them, and and how do you feel about it? Um, my only message is uh, that we stand with them in their fight, and we do. Uh, admire and respect them for their resilience, for their bravery, 
and for their um, uh, for, for their courage. And I can say that uh, I have been feeling the violence of this regime uh, on my own family. It has been. Um, it has affected my family, my kids, deeply. And I know what it is to fight a monster. And uh, I'm standing with them and I will do everything I can to bring closer the demise of the regime. Even if it's, uh, I'm thinking about it as putting my small, maybe small, yes, but still my nail into the coffin of the regime. I will be as public as I can. I will be as loud as I can in denouncing the crimes committed by the regime against Ukrainians and against Russians. And I will do everything possible to bring uh, closer the end of this war and to, to continue spreading the message about sanctions, uh, spreading the message about political repression in Russia, about crimes committed in Ukraine. So I'm just going to continue doing what I've been doing for the last half a year. Well, uh, Evgenia Karamutsa, you are extraordinarily brave and uh, thank you so much for your time. Ordinarily, I would ask a guest now uh, who three Australians would be that they would invite to a barbecue, but it feels very uh, completely inappropriate after the conversation we've had. So I'm going to let you off the hook and not force you to answer that question so you can get out of here. I think it's the first guest ever without having to answer that, but you've been so generous with your time. So good luck in your struggle and best of luck to your family and best of luck to Vladim. And, uh, you know, please let us know how we can help you in your uh, struggle. Thank you very much. And actually, uh, now that you asked the question, uh, you did not ask the question. Yeah. But I can think of one Australian I would love please. to have over for barbecue. Please. That is uh, Senator Kimberly Kitchen. Wow. He was one of the fiercest campaigners for the introduction of the Magnitsky legislation in Australia. And uh, uh, she passed away recently. Indeed. And that was a big blow, I think, to human rights fights all around the globe because she's been, she was an amazing human being. I had the privilege of knowing her and uh, um, have the privilege of talking with her a few times. And she, um, she's, um, it's such a loss, honestly. And uh, this is the one Australian I would love to have over for barbecue anytime. Yeah, I, um, yeah, Kimbo, as we called her, is a very, was a very close friend of mine as well. And uh, I was a huge admirer of her work. And she was a fierce champion for human rights everywhere. And uh, an outstanding politician, an outstanding person, and you know, she passed away whilst I was in Ukraine the first time, uh, and I was actually on the border uh, watching refugees cross into Poland, and got the message that she passed away. It was just shocking news, I think, for everyone, and it's amazing to me and everyone I've spoken to in, I suppose, the human rights activism networks, if we can call them that, uh, around the world continually raise Kimber and how much they miss her. And so, uh, you know, I'd love to have her at my barbecue too, Evgenia. Yeah. So uh, a, uh, a true champion and a huge loss. And 
you know, we, we, we miss her greatly. But um, I think that's a lovely place to end the conversation. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, continue to struggle and go well. Thank you very much for having me. G'day, Diplomates fans. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, a big thank you once again to Evgenia for coming on the show. And uh, it was really a, an important conversation to have. Now, uh, lots of questions. I know it's been a while since the last episode. Uh, so I'm going to go to the top of the pile here and say, uh, how worried should we be about Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon? This question is from Jay. Uh well, as I sit here in Kiev, I'm going to say quite worried. Uh, but I don't think Putin will actually do it. I think, uh, you know, I've said this in the past, whenever Putin talks about hypersonic weapons, tactical nukes, his nuclear arsenal generally, it's when things aren't going well. He was talking about it a lot when they lost the battle for Kiev. Uh, he started talking about it again when they lost the battle for Hard Kiev, if you want to call it that, in that recent counteroffensive. And now this attempt to, uh, um, you know, essentially freeze his gains through a massive mobilization of 300,000 troops. They sham referendums in four parts of occupied Ukraine. And it says, well, once we annex them formally into uh, Mother Russia, because they'll then be mu- uh, Russian territory, and if anyone comes in, uh, we reserve the right to nuke them. Um, what Putin's trying to do is change the terms of warfare. And what I mean by that is previously, uh, you've never seen threats about nuclear weapons being used in conventional war. So nuclear weapons have been threatened against nuclear weapons, if you can put it that way. Uh, what Putin's now doing is saying, uh, if you support Ukraine too much, I'll nuke you. Uh, if you send weapons to uh, Ukraine and they get used against Russia, I'll nuke you. Uh, if you invade parts of your own country that I've occupied and illegally annexed, I'll nuke you. And what we can't do is let Putin uh, you know, bluff the world. He's saying he's not bluffing, but, you know, if we start to cave into these threats, where does it end? Of course, uh, we should hope that he never uses them, but we need to operate in a world that he doesn't because the alternative, I believe, is much worse than, frankly, giving in. Um, is you know, It's unthinkable to have a nuclear weapon dropped in this day and age, but if Putin realises that he can get away with this tactic, he'll use it again and again, as will others uh, like Xi Jinping. So... There's the answer to that question. I hope I'm right. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Please like, share, rate, review the episode. Tune in next time. I'll see you soon. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.